Welcome to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett McGarry. There's a big one opening this weekend, and it could just be the movie to get me off my lazy butt and back into a theater. Plus... I'm Jeff Braun. A lot of our old friends return to television this week. Mando, Grogu, Probes, and the Survivor medical team will give our first impressions of new seasons of The Mandalorian and Survivor. Plus... I enjoyed myself this week with the second season of Vikings Valhalla. So let's start with that big one. We are excited for the latest movie in the boxing saga. Now for Adonis Creed, out this weekend, it's Creed 3. Hey, my man, can I help you? Let me get an autograph. Nah, I ain't signing an autograph, but you get off my car. You don't remember me, huh? Damien. How long were you locked up? 18 years, bro. Just got out last week. Glad to have you back out, huh? I know I've been away a long time, but I kept myself in shape. I still got gas in the tank. Come by the gym. Thank you. It is the latest in the Creed and Rocky saga, although no Rocky in this one. The first Creed movie came out in 2015, which saw Michael B. Jordan play the unknown son of Apollo Creed from the Rocky movies. Apollo Creed was the heavyweight champ, of course, who gave an unknown Rocky Balboa a shot at the title, and Rocky eventually went on to beat him in the rematch of Rocky II and become a great champion himself. And after six Rocky movies... A Creed movie sounded stupid, but that first Creed movie was fantastic. And the sequel was awesome, too. His opponent in that sequel was Victor Drago, son of Ivan Drago from Rocky IV. And they added way more character development for the Dragos than I ever would have expected. And it was excellent. So now we've got this threequel directed by Michael B. Jordan in his directorial debut. And again, no Sylvester Stallone involvement. He handed off the reins in the last movie, but he's been quite public in complaining about this movie, so there's some drama there. Jonathan Majors plays the antagonist here. He was just in Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania as the antagonist there, Kang the Conqueror. Here, he plays a childhood friend of Adonis Creed, gets out of jail after 18 years, and he wants his shot at the belt. At this point, Creed's retired, but he's going to have to come out of retirement to take him on because his buddy was the superior physical specimen and he is coming for the championship. It looks great. And at last check, 89% on Rotten Tomatoes. Damien's fighting the world. He's trying to hurt people. I vouch for you. You think you mad? Try spending half your life in a cell. Why does somebody else live your life? I'm coming for everything. You threatening me? Something is going on with you. Damien was like family. Now we pass talking. Then maybe you just have to find him. So yeah, I'm excited for this because I have rewatched both Creed movies a couple of times, and I just recently rewatched Creed Two. Uh, more than once, I really enjoyed it. I enjoy this character. I like what they, uh, the direction they've taken these stories and the fact that they haven't gotten campy or sort of become caricatures of themselves yet. And everything I'm hearing is that Michael B. Jordan's directorial debut is a success with some of his own unique flourishes. So, yeah, I'm pumped. What about you, Jeff? Oh, I'm very excited. I think that you were right when you said the when we first heard about Creed One that it, where everyone's like, "Well, that seems kind of stupid," but that first Creed movie is terrific. That might be the best of 
all the Rocky movies, as far as I'm concerned. I know it's not going to be the case for everyone, of course. But uh, yeah, and then Creed 2 was a sequel to both Creed and Rocky 4 at the same time, which is kind of a, uh, bends your mind a little bit if you think about it like that. And so this Creed series has been just fantastic. I, I can't wait to see uh, what they got in store for us here with Creed 3. And once again, Jonathan Majors getting rave reviews for his performance. I think one reviewer summed it up simply by saying, Jonathan Majors is officially a movie star with this role. And his character looks, he looks like a tough, bad character. Like he, he gets in the ring and he lays on some hurt on his opponents. It looks like in one scene, it he may have possibly killed one of his opponents. I can't quite tell from the trailer. But uh, yeah, he means business and greed. Has his hands full again. Also cool to see that Victor Drago is back in this movie. Don't know like what his involvement is, how much he's going to be in it. It looks like there's one scene where he's helping Creed train. So I don't know if he's going to be in his corner during the fight or oh. what the deal is there. But uh, yeah, it was just a flash I in sort the trailer. I, I sort of hope that uh, it's revealed at some point that the Jonathan Majors character is uh, the son of Clubber Lang or something like that. <laughs> to bring in all the kids into the series, why not do that? That would be great. I, I actually kind of <laughs> wondered, is this is there going to be some sort of a Clubber Lang tie-in here to draw that parallel yeah. between Rocky Three and Creed Three? But anyway, it looks like it's going to be a hit. I can't wait to see it. There was no pun intended by that. Boxing movie hit, LOL. <laughs> Speaking of hit shows... We previewed it last week, and I could not wait to get home from work this past Wednesday to watch the first episode of Season 3 of the Star Wars series, The Mandalorian. I'm going to Mandalore so that I may be forgiven for my transgressions. May the Force be with you! This is the way. So, Jeff, what'd you think? Oh, I thought it was a great episode. Uh, the cold, Right from the beginning, this cold open that starts with a bang. Uh, we sort of learn a little bit or reminded about the Mandalorians and how their planet was wrecked and how they moved, had to move away and yada yada. They still hold fast to their old ways, of course. And then it turns into this great action scene that culminates with uh, the Mandalorian arriving to save the day and that title card and the theme pop up just <clears throat> great television there just the first three minutes. Exactly the start you would want after the show being gone for what feels like forever. I can't remember exactly how long it's been. I know he was in Boba Fett last year, but it's been a while since we got a, a season of proper of The Mandalorian. And that theme song, it's so good. I know we've raved about it before, but I just love the music in this. The Andor score was also really good. And I don't know, these composers, I guess, are, <clears throat> excuse me, sort of chasing John Williams and his original Star Wars score, which is probably the most iconic of all time. The TV scores, I mean, obviously aren't going to be as good as the original Star Wars score, but uh, they are very good. Uh, you know, Mando's basically a space-age Clint Eastwood Western, Western anyways. Uh, the way he talks sounds like Clint and all those spaghetti Westerns, so the Western theme to, to the music, uh, I just, it grabs me every time. Um, the rest of the episode I thought was dynamite as well. It clearly set up the stakes for the season. We got a sense of what the overall story will be as Mando returns to Mandalore to seek his redemption. And then, you know, we get a sense of how the season might be structured with the little missions he'll need to complete along the way to competing, uh, completing the bigger mission. So 
it was just good storytelling, good setup. We know where he is, what he needs to do, and the first parts of you know how he needs to do that stuff. And you can just settle in and enjoy the ride. Grogu's back, as cute as ever. Still sort of wish they never named him. Uh, calling him Baby Yoda, I thought, was more fun to say. Carl Weathers, also as cute as ever. He's uh, Mando's friend. Is he the only one who calls him Mando? I feel like he is. Maybe he's just the best at it. At any rate, he runs this mining planet. He's transformed it into one of the very few Star Wars locations where you would actually like to settle down and raise a family. Uh, most uh, Star Wars movies or shows that go someplace and you're like, nah, -uh, wouldn't want to live there. And he loves his job. Enthusiastic Carl Weathers, always a joy to watch. Uh, he's really into it. He's really, uh, Carl Weathers, the actor, is just having a ton of fun, you can tell. And uh, it's kind of, it's it's infectious. It's contagious. We, it makes it just makes it a joy to watch. Uh, we're also introduced to a band of space pirates. I, I doubt we've heard the last of them. Uh, you got to have some bad guys to keep it interesting, of course. The stuff with the droid was great, as was uh, the brief appearance of Bo-Katan and a couple of other characters we've met before. Just exciting to be back in this world. I was surprised at uh, how much I I had missed it while I was gone. I, I usually don't... I, I like The Mandalorian, I'd, but I rarely catch myself thinking, boy, I can't wait till that comes back. But now that it's back, I find I'm very excited about it. Um, and, you know, part of the fun is that although there have been connections to other Star Wars stuff that we know from the past, like Luke Skywalker and Boba Fett or whatever, this show really is its own thing, which is nice. And I, it's by far uh, one of the shining pieces of the Star Wars universe, especially over the last decade or so. Yeah, yeah I, I was just so happy. And it was December 2020, by the way, when season two wrapped up. So it has been a long time. And it's just fun. Like the way the Mandalorian and Baby Yoda slash Grogu are introduced <laughs> in this season. It was just so cool. You know, they popped up on screen, like just as you described with the title card. I just, I actually cheered. I was like, yeah, it's back. And uh, that unexpected wild action to start the season like you talked about holy smokes just tremendous visuals i had a total blast and i, I wish the episodes were longer but i get it you know expensive visuals etc and i also want to point out because i was having a conversation uh with somebody who does not like the mandalorian and he was giving me the gears over it and, and so yeah not everybody likes this show someone sent me uh, he, this guy sent me a video this week after he expressed his disgust towards the Mandalorian. This is a video from TikTok that came out in December 2020, and it's called, Every Episode of the Mandalorian Be Like... Oh no, we can't do our mission because we're out of milk. Guess we better get some of this new planet. Hey, we just need to get some milk. We don't like Mandalorians, but we'll give you some milk if you kill the warlord monster bandit that's been using our Wi-Fi. Okay, well, here's your mi- Wait a second. Oh no, Baby Yoda drank all the milk. So, I mean, the visuals are much better because it's so cheesy and cheap, but it, it, that's great satire because, yeah, this show is a lot of Mando just crisscrossing the galaxy, going on rant, what seemed like random adventures, getting roped into helping this person or that person, and then Grogu getting into mischief because he's a baby. But still, I enjoy it. And it is now pointing towards a bigger story for this character and the increased importance of this character and what... He, he could mean for the people of Mandalore and potentially the galaxy. So hopefully that's where it eventually goes. But we know this show is not going to go on forever. I am curious how long they're going to keep Grogu like this little baby Yoda. We, will he ever learn to speak? I know that 
his species, like Yoda, they age super slowly. Like Yoda lived to 900 years old. So will like, he be a baby for the duration of the series, however long it goes? Will we ever find out where he was in Star Wars episodes 7, 8, and 9? Like if he ages really slow, then... Maybe he's just still essentially a toddler during those movies, so obviously he wasn't going to jump into the war and fight like a Jedi. Or worse, maybe he's dead by then, but I don't know. I can't imagine them ever killing this character. I think there would be anarchy <laughs> if that happened. That would be worse than, you know, when like when a show or a movie kills a dog and people are like, nope, not watching that. Uh, killing Baby Yoda would be ten times worse. Yeah, so uh, The Mandalorian Season 3, it is here New episodes on Wednesdays on Disney+. Plus. Also new episodes on Wednesdays, Survivor, and it had a wild premiere. We'll get into that next on The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff, he's Brett, and Survivor 44 kicked off on global TV this week. I feel like the Survivor doctor got more screen time than anyone else over the course of the two hours of the season 44 premiere. He was called upon at least three times, including in the first five minutes, as Castaway Bruce bonked his head and created a pretty nasty-looking gash that bled much more than I was comfortable with. Uh, then another guy later on foolishly climbed a big wet rock and fell off, messing up his shoulder. I mean, at this rate, they'll all be dead before the finale. It's weird because we can often go a whole season or two without having anyone call for medical at all. So to have it happen so much in just the premiere, I thought was weird. Hopefully it was a one-off for this season, uh, all kidding aside. The other thing that struck me was uh, during the episode was that it opened with a contestant's confessional, this lady Carolyn, except she didn't know what to say. It was supposed to be her talking about herself and, you know, why, wh who are you and why are you here on Survivor kind of thing. And she just rambled incoherently until the producer chimed in with, uh, this is supposed to be the easy one. So they actually spent a lot of time focusing on this lady pulling uh, big facial expressions and making weird noises, and I'm not entirely sure why. I don't lick well with them. Are you kidding me? No. <laughs> are we supposed to think that she's just a bit quirky or is there something more serious at play? Uh, some of it seemed kind of mean the way they had edited uh, her making random noises, but uh, so I don't know. So I think I'm kind of rooting for her now, actually. Uh, as for the rest of the cast, they were largely likable. Not sure that we've heard from everybody. The probes called on one guy for his thoughts right before the immunity challenge, like an hour 20 into the episode, and I wasn't totally sure that I had even seen that guy yet during the episode. It'll take a few weeks of course, to get a handle on all the names, but I do feel like this episode was more involving than a first episode usually is. I was more engaged. I had a better handle on the different dynamics in the various camps, so I'm optimistic about the season. I will say that one thing that is both good and bad about the casting lately is they seem to be going out of their way to cast people that are generally nice people. Like, there haven't been a lot of villains or just people who are kind of nasty in general. Like, they always used to have at least one guy who is just a total jerk that you, everyone hated. Uh, you know, and I like that they're not doing that from a human decency point of view, but it maybe takes some of the fun of the gameplay away because, you know, rooting against someone on Survivor was often as much fun as rooting for someone. And lately, it seems like the casting has just been a little more bland than it used to be. There's also an aspect of there, the game changing as far as people's attitudes towards it, in that people don't take it as personally anymore 
if others are plotting against them, they, they get that it's just a game and that people will gun for them sooner or later. And so you have fewer incidents of people being, you know, steaming mad at each other over that. It's not totally gone, but back in the day, most episodes would begin with the immediate aftermath of the last episode's tribal council and someone would be really fired up and just uh, screaming at everybody because they got their buddy got voted out or whatever. Uh, nevertheless, I thought it was a great start to what's hopefully a great season of Survivor 44, Brett. That's an interesting point you make about the cast and the casting and how they they seem to be trying to harvest as many nice people because I, I have noticed that too the last couple of seasons. And even in The Amazing Race, the American version, they've done the same thing where, where all of the teams are likable, so it's tough to root specifically for just one like like in the finale for the last season of the amazing race i think there were three teams or four teams i can't remember how many they had in the finale but i was would have been happy with any of them winning which is great but also at the same time it's still a competition and you gotta you know you gotta pick one horse to root for and like you said if there's a villain and you can root against them that honestly i think i enjoy that more when that person goes home where you're like yes you're gone get off my television but survivor (laughs) 44 airs wednesdays on global up next we want to talk about awards season because jeff watched another best picture nominee details next on the couch potatoes Welcome back to the Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. We're going to talk about award season now. And first up uh, this week, my Oscar preparation of watching all the Best Picture nominees took me to the front lines of World War I with Netflix's All Quiet on the Western Front. Schließen wir Frieden. Wo muss jetzt tapfer sein? Für die, die es nicht geschafft haben. Für uns alle. It's in German, by the way, with English subtitles. All Quiet on the Western Front came out on Netflix last fall, I believe, so I'm sure a lot of people have already seen it. It's actually been on my list since it came out, but I never got around uh, to it until this week, not because I was being lazy or anything, although maybe a little bit, but mostly because I heard it was pretty grisly, and I just wasn't in the mood for it until now. And that was the right move, because uh, this movie is relentless in its depiction of the brutalness of war. You gotta know that going in. You gotta sort of brace yourself for it. It's, uh, you know, on a Friday night when you're kind of tired and you want something like, this is not the movie to watch at that time. Uh, the movie's based on the novel from 1929. There were also been other movies, most recently, I guess, a TV movie in 1979. I have not seen that movie, but uh, if it was on TV in 1979, it was nothing like this movie. For one thing, like I said, this new movie's in German with English subtitles. The uh, old movie wouldn't have done that. The story follows Paul, a young German soldier who eagerly joins the war effort with his friends, all of whom very quickly regret regret it because war is hell. They get sent to the front lines of France in uh, 1917, I believe, where they engage in trench warfare with the French for years, a couple of years. It's gnarly, um, besides the quote-unquote regular kind of war footage that we're used to, you know, which is mostly soldiers being shot and blown up. This movie also has quite a bit of hand-to-hand combat, and a lot of it is gruesome. They're bayonets, knives, shovels, and rocks, anything that can be used as a weapon, uh, you know, when your life depends on it. Being the main character, we know that young Paul will be with us for the whole movie, but that, of course, is not the case with anyone else in uniform. That's just war movies for you. Some will live, 
many will die, who and the manner in which it happens are kind of the only things that aren't known. There are a few heartbreaking deaths in this movie. A lot of the time, the heartbreak is simply because of how unceremoniously those deaths happen. Steven Spielberg uh, changed war movies in 1998 with Saving Private Ryan. We were kind of used to either old, very patriotic war movies where characters died, these Hollywood deaths, something grand with a rousing speech or whatever, or we're used to the, the Vietnam movies of the 70s and 80s that were a lot bleaker about warfare, but still featured over-the-top deaths. Uh, like Willem Dafoe in the movie Platoon, for example. His arms go up and flailing everywhere as he gets shot down. But since Saving Private Ryan, we get more realistic deaths. A soldier is alive and well, engaged in the fight. He gets shot and simply drops to the ground, suddenly lifeless. Sometimes there is a brief moment of them crying out in pain, but uh, so many times it's just a dull thud, and it's isn't it's very depressing, of course. And All Quiet on the Western Front has that in spades. The movie is bleak, which is probably, you know, what it gets the most right about war. There are just dead people everywhere throughout. Soldiers try to keep their spirits up. There is camaraderie, but death is always around. I bet there are as many dead bodies just lying on the ground in this movie than alive bodies moving around. Now, to give the audience a break, there's another storyline going on. It stars Daniel Bruhl. He's the guy that plays Zemo in the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. He plays a German official who's tasked with negotiating the end of the war with the French, which kind of brings us to the timeline of the movie. Uh, while it starts earlier in the war, the movie is mostly set in the very final days of the war, like literally the last week of World War One, which makes the fact that so many soldiers are dying so much sadder because it's so close to being over. Um, the overall theme of the movie is simply that war is hell, and it just stubbornly sticks to that theme, even when you sort of hope that some Hollywood will shine through at the end. Four couch cushions out of five for All Quiet on the Western Front, available now on Netflix. And like I said, it's up for a bunch of Oscars, uh, nine altogether, including Best Picture. And uh, award season is going to conclude next weekend with the Academy Awards. In the last couple of weeks, we've had some other big awards programs, namely the BAFTAs and the SAG Awards. The BAFTAs are the British Oscars, and the big winner there was All Quiet on the Western Front. It won the BAFTA Best Picture, as well as Director, Foreign Language Film, adapted screenplay, cinematography, original score, and sound. So it just like swept through those things. I don't know that it's really a harbinger of things to come at the Oscars next weekend because the movie has not been winning a lot at any of the other award shows. It has won a handful of awards, but the BAFTAs is really the only place it's cleaned up. Now, as a film from Germany, it likely simply wasn't eligible for a lot of American Guild Awards and maybe some movies in Oscar contention weren't eligible to BAFTAs, or maybe the British Academy folks are just on a different wavelength than the people in Hollywood. Honestly, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if at least half the movies that are up for Best Picture next weekend win. Like, there's five movies. It could be any one of those, and I wouldn't be terribly surprised with it. Although I will say the smart money still has to go to Everything Everywhere All at Once, which cleaned up at the Screen Actors Guild Awards last week. It was a history-making night for Everything Everywhere All at Once. The film winning Best Ensemble, the Screen Actors Guild Awards, four awards total, the most of any movie in SAG Awards history. Star Michelle Yeoh, the first Asian woman to win Best Actress. I think if I speak, my heart will explode. Jamie Lee Curtis, Best Supporting Actress, and Ki Hui Kwan, Best Supporting Actor, the first Asian male to win a solo SAG Film Award. Thank you, everyone, for rooting for me. I will be rooting for you. Thank you so much. Thank Everything you. Everywhere All at Once also won Best Feature at the Producers Guild Awards Saturday night and is now the frontrunner for Best Picture at the Oscars. Jason Nathanson, ABC News. Hollywood.
And the big upset there, and it's not really an upset, was Michelle Yeoh winning Best Actress over Kate Blanchett and now probably becoming the favorite for the Oscar. I think Blanchett gives the best performance of the year in the movie Tar, but she has two Oscars already. And I also love Michelle Yeoh, so I'll be happy if she wins. Now, the SAGs must have been the last big award show before next week's Oscars, and then the award season will finally end. I mean, people think the NHL playoffs or the baseball season drag on too long. They got nothing on uh, Hollywood handing out trophies to itself. It's just endless. It's been going on for like almost three months already, and if you're Michelle Yeoh or Kate Blanchett or Brendan Fraser or Austin Butler or Kihi Kwan, uh, you've had to go to a fancy award show almost every weekend for the last couple of months since Christmas, really, and this just must be exhausting, Brett. No kidding. I mean, really, the the kickoff, the sort of unofficial kickoff, doesn't it happen in November? I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember what it's... I what it's called, it, it escapes me at the moment, but there's like a top 10 list, like the National Film Institute or something like that, the National Board right. of Review. And uh, that happens in l- the late part of the year. And really that's sort of the starting gun. And then it just drags on and on and on. And here we are in March and they're finally going to put it to a close. I think part of the the problem that makes it a bit of a drag as a consumer of pop culture is that we now have access to all of these other shows like the screen actors guild. Like these were things that happened, but we never saw them. Uh, It's only, I think in recent years that they've been televising more of these things and that we've been learning more about all these different producers guild and, and critics associations. And uh, so every, every other week there's some sort of awards that are being given out. And because we have, Instant access to all of this information with the internet. When I was a kid, it was the Golden Globes and the Oscars, and that's it. So I don't know if there's something to that, or maybe I've just gotten become more jaded and grumpy over the years. I don't know. But yeah, I also sort of feel bad for the people involved. Like, it was wonderful to hear the joy in the voices of Michelle Yeoh and Kiki Uikwan uh, in his clip where he says, thank you for rooting for me. I will be rooting for you. Like, it's just wonderful. And he, the, he sidebar, he's such a great story to, he hasn't been in a movie for years. So to come yeah. back in and kick butt in such a great way. And I think they're talking about putting him in a Marvel movie and he's really pumped about that. So he, what a comeback for him. But um, to just the, the thought of going to, Awards show after awards show after awards show, I realize that they are celebrities and they get to wear nice clothes and they get paid a bit more money than the rest of us, but they're still people. And to have to go through that every week, multiple times a week would be horrible. (laughs) I think. Yeah. Especially, especially if you're like, I don't know for a fact where she lives or anything, but Kate Blanchett uh, is Australian, so if she lives in Australia but has to like stay in Hollywood for three straight months just to go to a different thing every weekend, that, that would drive me nuts too. And for Kihi Kwan, like he must literally be running out of things to say when he goes to collect trophies because he's won like a dozen literally so far. He, he must like how do you say thank you that many times to largely this? I know it's different organizations, but. A lot of it feels like it's probably the same people over and over and over again. It's just, it's wild. And also, what if you're, what what, do you, what are they supposed to do about work? Are they working five days a week and then spending their weekends at award show? Like, that's that should count as a work day, but, I mean, do you have to, like, pass on other, oh, we were, 
going to shoot a movie in January and February, but uh, Kate Blanchett can't make it because she has to go to every friggin' award show on the place place of the face of the earth. That's right. Wasn't Michael Caine? Didn't he win an Oscar? But he wasn't present because he yes. was busy shooting Jaws four. The, yeah, the reshoots for the ending of Jaws 4, which didn't make that movie any better, by the way. Uh, yeah, he lost out on an Oscar, for, picking up an Oscar in person for that. But uh, And another thing, too, that's got to be tough for these performers, if, like, imagine a guy like Brendan Fraser, who is waiting for the Oscars. Am I going to win the Oscar? Is this going to be my night, my moment of triumph? So I would just feel like all these other things along the way are amplifying what has to be an anxious moment in his career. So, yeah, it would be tough. I mean, award season, it's great, but it, it just drags on a little too long. In a second, we want to tell you about a show that does not drag on too long. It's shorter seasons actually, I think, sort of increase its value. Details next. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brad, he's Jeff, we are the Couch Potatoes. I finally got around to watching a show this week that returned on Netflix back on January 12th. It's a continuation of a show that spun off from one of my favorite shows of the past decade. And while the stories are all new and different, I can pretty much reread my review from last year of this first season almost word for word because everything is pretty much the same. And that's just fine. It's like ACDC. Some bands don't change because they don't need to. I'm talking about Vikings Valhalla. men back there were bounty hunters. Olaf has placed a price on your head and my sisters. Peace is a peaceful place, but the cries you run from have not ceased. We are now on different paths, but you are not giving up. So first, let's go back to the original show, Vikings. It was on the History Channel for six seasons from 2013 until 2020. It was co-Canadian produced by the company we work for, Chorus Entertainment. And no, I'm not saying I loved it just to be a company guy. Like, it was an awesome show. It followed the adventures, conquests, and rise to power of Ragnar Lothbrok, his wife Lagertha, and the sons of Ragnar, not all birthed by Lagertha. It was excellent. Its final season was somewhat meh, but overall, it was a fantastic show. If you want to watch Vikings, by the way, the first five seasons are on Netflix, but to watch the sixth and final season, you can do that through the Global TV app or Stack TV. Now we've got this spinoff on Netflix, which works on its own. Like, you don't have to see a single episode in the original series, 89 episodes, by the way, set over a thousand years ago in the early 11th century. Vikings Valhalla takes place 100 years after the first series. It follows some additional famous Vikings, Leif Erikson, his sister Freydis Eriksdotter, and the Nordic prince Harald Sigurdsson. The first season saw Leif and Freydis travel from Greenland to the city of Kattegat in Norway on a personal mission, and they got swept up into the action. The official description of season one... As tensions between the Vikings and the English royals reach a bloody breaking point, and as the Vikings themselves clash over their conflicting Christian and pagan beliefs, these three Vikings begin an epic journey that will take them across oceans and through battlefields from Kattegat to England and beyond as they fight for survival and glory. Season 2 is described as hunted and on the run. Our legendary Viking heroes are forced to test their ambitions and courage in worlds beyond the fjords of Scandinavia. So if that all sounds familiar, like if you watch the original series, 
If it sounds familiar, as though it's kind of the same thing we got in the first series, the first season, well, that's because it is. It's pretty much the exact same thing. The Vikings are still warring with each other for power. The Vikings are still warring with each other over their religious beliefs, with more and more turning to Christianity, while some are still hanging on to their devotion to their old gods, like Odin, Thor, and Freya. The English are still scheming amongst themselves for power, and all the while, they are all committing horrific and violent atrocities against each other. It's a rehash, and it works. I love it. The show's creator, Jeb Stewart, says he wants to maintain the DNA of the original series created by Michael Hurst, and he did. It still has the same kind of soap opera component of everyone trying to take each other out to gain more power. It has clever and well-executed battle scenes, tremendous and passionate performances. Season 1 debuted in late February 2022. Season 2, like I mentioned, January 12th of this year, so it's nice to see a show actually come back within a year for a change, and yet I still managed to forget lots of stuff. But I remembered enough to follow along. And as much as I enjoyed Season 1, I think I would say Season 2 is an improvement because it did add an element back that seemed to be missing in that first season, and that's the signature sweeping wide and beautiful cinematography. There's just lots of gorgeous scenery to behold this time around because they're in beautiful places uh, around the world, and we didn't really get to soak that up in that first season. So maybe that was just a budget thing. I don't know. Clearly, they got more budget this time around. Just great stories, great characters, great action, great costumes and sets. Everything about this show is great. And it's not nearly the commitment that that first series was. Like I said, 89 episodes over six seasons. Vikings Valhalla is eight episodes a season, now bringing it to 16. So if you've ever been curious about the Vikings series, but you're not ready to commit to six seasons, maybe just try Vikings Valhalla instead. The one negative thing about it, I think, is the fact that it is the same. Like, it's a great show. I enjoy it. It's like visiting with an old friend you haven't seen in a while. You just sort of slide back into that conversation with such ease. And because it's familiar, that's what this show does. It's like an old friend. But it's all so familiar that it's just starting to feel like a retread. But I still enjoyed it. I just didn't feel any urgency to get through the first five episodes. But I will say this. Episode six was excellent. And so I had to immediately watch episode seven, which was also terrific. So I lost some sleep staying up to watch the eighth and final episode of the season. It was a delight. And I can't wait for season three. So overall, I guess I'd give season two of Vikings Valhalla four couch cushions out of five. That's all the time we've got. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother. Oh,